Tonight we wrap up our study in the book of Philippians um, after the previous nine weeks of praying and preparing and preaching through Philippians, written by Paul. I'm sorry, I'll stop with the piece. Um, after the past nine weeks in this book, in this letter, I hope that you are encouraged uh, in the same ways maybe that I've been encouraged or maybe there have been different uh, levels of encouragement you've had. If you've missed any of the sermons, all but one are available online and then tonight's will be available uh, by tomorrow and so you can go back and listen to those. Uh, but it's been, I hope, an encouraging fall, uh, even with the interruption of the hurricane, uh, which threw us off for a few weeks and a d- few different things here and there. I think throughout uh, just the, the arc of Philippians from verse 1 to Chapter 1, 1 to 4, 23, I think there's just been a, an overall note of encouragement about what it looks like to be believers living out the gospel in community with each other um, and how the, the gospel has both of what Christ has done and what are we doing uh, impact on our life. And so we're wrapping it up tonight. I'm sad that we're coming to a close, but Philippians, like most uh, good movies or books, like most, not all, but like most good movies or books, ends without any unresolved tension or loose ends. There's no cliffhanger in Philippians uh, at all. Paul brings everything uh, back into focus on the glory of God in the Philippians' life and in their circumstances. And in one final pastoral push, he encourages the Philippians that they are going to be okay, even though they may feel weak in their ability to stand for the faith. Godly contentment, personal gratitude, and expectant joy mark the closing words of Paul's most personal of church letters. Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful tonight for your love for us, for your care for us. We're grateful that you in your divine wisdom and providence gave us the scriptures. We can't even begin to fathom what our life would be as believers if we didn't have your word. So Father, would we treasure it? Would we read it? Would we meditate on it? Would we be those who know your word well? Because the most sure way to know you is by knowing you through the word that you've given us. So that's our aim in preaching through books of the Bible. That's our aim in having Bibles on our phones and in our pockets and everywhere seemingly in our homes is not just to have decoration, but to have opportunities to read the divinely inspired word and for our lives to be changed because of it. Father, we love you. We give you all the praise and all the glory for all that you're doing in Christ's name. Amen. In order to set the stage for the last handful of verses tonight, I want to go back and revisit a quote from the end of last two weeks ago, uh, the end of the sermon. I read a quote from D.A. Carson. I want to reread that to you because it's going to set the stage for how we move through the last bit of chapter four tonight. Regarding the fourth chapter of Philippians and his commentary, D.A. Carson says, many of the specific injunctions in this chapter are calculated to foster perseverance. What Paul offers is not simply doctrinal content, though that is important, or simple orders designed to elicit some sort of explicitly Christian behavior, but attitudinal commands aimed at fostering whole life, long-lasting commitment to the one true God. So that's Paul's aim, and that's what I want us to be thinking through in terms of this is really basic kind of, you read it and you go, oh yeah, well that's exactly what Paul meant, type application for our life tonight. So my prayer for us is that we would leave tonight with a view toward lifelong enjoyment of and obedience to God. Paul writes in four ten through 13, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am 
to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul, in verse 4.10, we can often read those words, if we read them at all, we're usually looking for 4.13, but if we read 4.10 and you take Paul's words at face value, you almost get a sense of exasperation on Paul's part. Like, oh, thank you for finally getting around to getting the gift to me. But that's really the last thing on Paul's mind. Paul is actually grateful that they had a desire to supply his ministry with financial and other needs that were there and that they didn't lose the desire to follow through on providing the gift to Paul. Paul is grateful that they have not allowed their concern for he and his gospel ministry to be swallowed up by the passage of time. They had a desire to support Paul's ministry and they faithfully delivered. You've got to remember, Paul wasn't checking in on Facebook when he got to a new city or town. Paul wasn't collecting check-in badges on Swarm. Do people do that anymore? I have no idea. Or Foursquare. I remember when that used to be a thing, like you could be the sheriff of a coffee bar or something. Uh, but Paul wasn't collecting check-in badges. He wasn't updating his Insta story at the end of every day with these long, you know, get down to those real like pencil, pen, uh, period-like marks in your Insta story of updating. Paul moved a lot. He traveled a lot in a world and in a time where travel was often long and dangerous, where communication and getting clear communication out of where you were and what your plans were often overlapped with you moving somewhere else. If you want to get a sense for how much Paul moved in his life, go back and read from Acts 9 to the end. Paul is almost in constant motion with no way for you to really know where he is until a letter gets to you and by that point he may be hundreds of miles away which in our mind is like not a big deal you can get there in a day but in their day that was maybe two to three weeks journey and if you started in that direction maybe you couldn't find him and so really what had happened is the Philippians had had this desire but it took Paul really being put in prison for him to be slowed down enough that they could pinpoint where he was in the ancient world and make plans to give an offering to Paul and his ministry. And so Paul is far from frustrated. He's actually very grateful because he knew that it would have been easy for the Philippians to lose heart and grow frustrated and actually decide to spend their resources on themselves rather than waiting for Paul to surface and stay in one place long enough that they could ensure the safe arrival of their gift. But they remained committed. They made good on the desire that the Spirit had placed in them. And now Paul was well supplied to continue his gospel ministry, even from the confines of Roman captivity. This is a sub point to everything else we're going to talk about tonight. But I'm really challenged by this in my own life. It's how often I will let just the passage of an afternoon stop me from following through on the Spirit's promptings of people to support through a text, through a call, through a letter, through all these different ways we have to connect with people. There's something to be said for people who will follow through with the desire the Spirit places on your heart, regardless of the passage of time, to encourage, to support, to reach out to, and to care for other believers. And I think Paul's greatly encouraged by it, and I think we would do well to model that from the Philippian perspective of remaining committed to those things that the Spirit places on our heart and on our mind. Paul then goes on in 11 and 12, he says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. Paul, in 11 and 12, moves with utmost pastoral care to ensure that the Philippians don't misunderstand his thankfulness for their gift as a veiled ask for even more support. It would be very easy for Paul to manipulate the Philippians into sending him even more money. Like the televangelists that are sometimes on TV after 11 o'clock who are always thankful for the gift you sent, but they always need more. Paul opens in in verse 11 by clearly stating that there is no ongoing need waiting to be met in order for his ministry to continue. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. Paul knew that there was no outstanding need. By the time this letter got back, being able to take inventory of all he had, Paul knew there was no need to write back to them of a need that would arise, that they would all of a sudden need to be sending someone right back with more money or more supplies. And why can Paul say that he no longer has a need? Paul says he no longer has a need because he has learned how to be content. Paul has learned how to look around at his life, understand his own giftings, his own strengths, his own weaknesses, and God's ability to provide in any and every situation. And he's learned to say, really, enough is enough. I'm content. I've got everything I need to do the work that God has called me to. And so he can write back and say there's no need because Paul had lived at the end of both extremes. Paul had lived wealthy, and Paul had lived poor. Paul had lived well-fed, and Paul had lived hungry. Paul had lived with an abundance, and Paul had lived in need. It's hard to learn contentment if you only ever live at one of the two extremes. If you've only ever known being well-fed, you don't know how you'll do being hungry, and so you don't know that you'll be content when you're hungry. If you've only ever lived in abundance and you've never lived in lack, you don't know if you can remain content in your lack. And you can flip that around. If you found a way to be content in being hungry, you don't know that you will remain content once you're fed. You have to have experience. Life experience has to put you on the far reaches of both extremes so that you can understand how to work back towards the middle to true contentment. And Paul had experienced it, so he could say, I've seen the far reaches of the extremes, and I found this to be true. Jesus is all I need, whether I have all the food I could want, or I'm wondering where my next meal is going to come from. Jesus is all I need for contentment, whether I have a roof over my head, or whether I am bound to a Roman guard. There's no situation Paul has been in, or will be in, that he hasn't learned the art of contentment already and so paul writes back to the philippians not with a veiled ask for more support but he writes to display to the philippians true contentment is not ever a matter of physical resources and if you're the philippians you need to be encouraged by paul saying this to you 
as the threat of persecution squeezes in, as the real probability of loss of home and loss of income and other losses mount as you maintain faithful witness to the gospel, you need the reminder from the apostle that true contentment won't be found in all that you can have or in having nothing. True contentment will only be found in Christ. Therefore, in context, in context, in context, Philippians 4.13 comes into play. My, 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 what a verse. So here's what we want to do. We want, we want to consider, I've, I've thought about a thousand things I wanted to say and a thousand things I wanted to not say, so I didn't make a fool of myself. Philippians 4.13 is not some magical phrase we say to be able to do things that are beyond our skill set and physical capabilities. Philippians 4.13 is not a magical phrase we say to be able to do things that are beyond our skill set and physical capabilities. Paul's words were not a first century summons to our modern turn of phrase which says anything you put your mind to is possible if you just keep working and don't give up. Trust me, if that were the aim of Philippians 4.13, I would not be standing here preaching to you tonight. I would have my jersey in the rafters at the Dean E. Smith Center, and I would be wrapping up a lucrative Hall of Fame NBA career because somewhere in there I would have repeated this enough that I could have dunked and grown another six inches and become a world-class NBA athlete. If it was just a simple matter of, let me repeat Philippians 4.13 until somehow God grows tired of hearing it and then just blesses me with me being able to do what I've always wanted to do. Maybe some of you wouldn't be here listening to me preach if this was how Philippians 4.13 really worked. In context, the verse has so much more depth and texture and beauty to it than it does if we use it as a bumper sticker to plaster on our own self-realization. Philippians 4.13 is not a summons to be your best life now. When Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, he is saying that whatever kingdom-advancing, gospel-proclaiming work that the Father has for him he, Paul, will be able to do because the Spirit of God in him will provide the required strength. The ESV Study Bible notes here are very helpful when they say in their notes, God will not bless whatever a person does. It must be read within the context of the letter with its emphasis on obedience to God and service to God and others. Philippians 4.13 should be prayed through with confidence when we take it out of sporting events and test grades and business deals and focus it squarely on helping us fulfill the law of Christ, which is to love God and to love others. We have to use a little bit of Paul's other writings to help us really get the texture and the beauty of 4.13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let me tell you what this is an invitation to. It is an invitation to own your weakness. It's the very antithesis of what most in the Western American church have turned it into, which is a statement of power and might and strength. And it's actually Paul's invitation into weakness. Because at the end of 2 Corinthians, he writes about asking for the thorn in his flesh to be taken away. Over and over he asks, Lord, take this away. And he says, and it's recorded that it was Jesus himself who told Paul, 
My grace is sufficient, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Philippians 4.13 is an invitation to own your weakness and trust that Christ's power at work in your weakness is greater than your strength at its best. It's an invitation to kingdom living and trust in the strength and the power of Christ to do what you cannot do on your own. When you understand Philippians 4.13 as an invitation into weakness, when you understand it as an invitation into a place of surrender and submission of the weakest parts of you to Christ to work His power through you, it becomes a verse not for self-worship but for Christ's exaltation. And if the Philippians were going to have an attitude, a whole life commitment to the gospel, They needed to hear Paul say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and how Christ strengthens me is by me admitting my weaknesses. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie The Princess Bride. Anybody here big Princess Bride fans? What's one of the most famous, often repeated lines in the movie? Anybody? They keep using the word inconceivable. And over and over and over again, throughout the movie you hear a, You keep using that word, but I do not think it means what you think it means. This is Philippians 4.13 in the South, in the church. We we read this and we go, oh yeah, yeah. We have to be willing to address people and say, look, you keep using that verse for like sporting. I don't know, that's not what it means at all. We have to be willing to understand in context how verses fit together in not only the surrounding context of the immediate letter or book that they're in, but how they support the overall arc of Scripture from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. And we have to be willing to not just go, oh, well, that's, I know that's not how it's used. Like, you have to be willing to walk with people through going, hey, in context, I really don't think that that means what you think it means, and that's okay. Or maybe it's like those uh, memes or the posts you've seen, like I was today years old when I realized X, whatever it is. Like my favorite one right now is the one about uh, the Chick-fil-A nuggets, uh, where the hole in the back is for your straw of your cup to go through, so you can set your nuggets on your drink cup and have a little table as you're driving or what. Like that's like, oh yeah, I was today years old when I realized. It's a similar thing again with Philippians 4.13. It's okay that people, maybe you've never really thought about 4.13 in context. And you can be today years old when you realize all that Paul's inviting us into. But it doesn't mean that you have to keep perpetuating bad exegesis and bad use of Scripture in your personal life or in the lives of your family and friends. And so we want to understand where verses, especially like 413, fit into the overall narrative of Scripture so that they can be rescued out of a bumper sticker culture and used to carry the full weight of the context as God designed for them to when the Spirit inspired the Word to be written in the first place. You cannot improve on Scripture's placement by taking it out of context and using it towards your own ends. Your mind does not surpass the mind of God in how to understand Scripture. Use it in context, walk through it in context, and then you'll find yourself encouraged more and more. Then in 4.18, Paul pivots really from godly contentment to personal and specific 
gratitude. He says, yet, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul reminds the Philippians that their latest gift that has arrived at the hand of Epaphroditus is nothing more than a continuation of the support they have shown him throughout his gospel ministry. And what you notice something very specific or very clear in Paul's writing in 14 through 18. Paul is specific about when and where he received help from the Philippian church. In the beginning, when he left Macedonia, the Philippians, which is where Philippi is, that church was the only one to partner with him. Later on, when Paul was in Thessalonica, they sent help yet again. And that almost seems like throwaway verses. But I want you to understand that there's a reason that Paul is not vague in his gratitude. And there's a reason that Paul ties in where he was and what he was doing with the Philippians partnering with him. His gratitude is specific because specific gratitude would force the Philippian believers to remember that it was God who had worked in them to be generous in the first place. Vague generalities and gratitude often leave us congratulating ourselves. But specific, thoughtful gratitude that calls to mind place and location and specific needs met does more to remind the one you're saying thank you to of how God prompted them to meet your need than it does if you just say, hey, thanks for that gift, you know, six months ago, whenever it was. I really appreciate that. We would do well to follow Paul's example of being specific with names and dates and places where specific needs were met by God's people on our behalf. This is a discipline. It's not going to happen by accident. But if we can work this discipline into our lives, it not only serves as an encouragement to us in the moments where we are waiting and praying for God's ongoing provision, but it also serves as a profound reminder to others of their past obedience as they continue working out their own salvation with fear and trembling. And I know there are cheesy things that people do, like the God-siding jars or whatever, and I'm not, we're not going to have a discussion about that tonight. All I'm saying is this. Do you have somewhere on your phone, somewhere in your home, where you keep specific record of when and how God met your needs through his people? Because if you can keep this discipline going, you find that there are days that you can call to mind easier to celebrate God's past faithfulness to you as you wait in the intervening time for God's next providing for you. And there are times that you can reach out and you can encourage someone with specific notes about how they encouraged you in their faithfulness of being responsible and responsive to the Spirit's work in their life. I think that there is something to be said for churches and individuals who can develop the habit of specific, pointed gratitude for how God has used others to bless you. And then you find 
that others will often remind you of the times that you've blessed them. And that's what Paul does in 17 and 18. He really gives us a master class in how to take specific gratitude and have it terminate on the glory of God and not on the giver or the recipient of the gifts. First, Paul says that he wasn't seeking the gift. Paul had not written them asking for more. They had simply sent more out of an overflow of their love and care for him. So what does Paul do? He says, I wasn't really looking for the gift. But here's what I will seek. I will seek the fruit of that gift. That is the gospel impact that will be credited to your account, Philippians, because of your faithful obedience. Paul could have took the rest of the letter to pat himself on the back about why their investment in his ministry alone was a good idea. But what Paul does is he pivots everything away from himself And he says, I wasn't seeking it, and because I wasn't seeking it, and you sent it, I'm not going to spend the rest of the letter talking about how great I am. Here's what I'm going to seek to do. I'm going to leverage everything that you have given me so that the credit on your account goes up and up and up and up with the fruit of the gospel that is a result of your giving. He takes what could have been a moment of self-congratulation and turns it into a moment of helping the Philippians see and understand that he's going to use this gift not primarily for himself, but for the advance of the gospel and for the payment to their account. Is it not rare to see this happen in the church and in our own personal lives today? In most cases, whether we give or receive the gift, we want people to know about us as the sinner of the story paul goes the other way entirely says in essence i appreciate the gift what i'm most excited about is what it reveals about you philippian believers what would our lives look like if we thought more about what the gifts we give and receive reveal about the spiritual growth of ourselves and others rather than our own perceived worthiness in being able to give or receive the gift Pointed specific gratitude terminates on the glory of God. Because specific, intentional gratitude reminds us that we've been blessed so that God would be glorified in our life. It takes us out of having to be the center of the story. It takes us out of having to prove if we are worth giving or receiving the gift. And it puts all of the focus on, I want to give or I want to receive in such a way that the fruit of the gospel grows. That's what I want to leverage the gifts that I receive. That's how I want to see others do in their life as I bless them with gifts, is how do you use all that you're being given to advance the gospel for the cause of the people who are blessing you? And then in 18, Paul brings in Old Testament imagery surrounding the sacrificial system to point to the truth that not only did the Philippian gift serve Paul well as a full payment, but it was a gift that was acceptable and pleasing to God as well. A fragrant offering in the Old Testament meant the offering had met God's requirements and God was pleased with what the worshipers had offered. ESV again is helpful here when it says, while the literal offerings of the Old Testament system have been done away with in Christ, the principle behind them of costly devotion to God remains. We know that Paul was intimately aware of the situation in Philippi. And he knew that the gift that arrived at 
his door in the hand of Epaphroditus was not given out of abundance. It was given out of poverty and out of lack, but out of a care and a concern for the gospel. Paul knows that, and he also knows that God has seen and is pleased with the Philippians' faithful and costly obedience. Paul wants to remind the Philippians of the spiritual act of worship that giving financially represents. If we're honest, and maybe the Philippians felt this way, but if we're honest, I think sometimes we feel as if the least spiritual thing we can do is to just contribute financially to gospel work. But I would contend that it's actually one of the most significant spiritual things you can do is to be generous with your finances towards gospel work. And here's what I mean by that. I mean, when was the last time you heard someone share with you about what they were going through? And you said, man, I'll pray for you. Or we'll be praying for you. Or let us know how that turns out. But when was the last time you begin to think, how can I meet that need? I think we're so close to what James warns against in his letter. Of if you see a brother who is hungry or in need of clothing, and you say, go, be well fed and clothed, and you don't do anything to meet the need, you don't really love your brother. And I think what Paul is after here, and what we do well to learn from this interaction with the Philippians is this. Giving is one of the most spiritually significant things that we can do. And it doesn't always have to be to a church, and it doesn't always have to be to a missionary somewhere else. Sometimes the most significant ways we display spiritual growth is in writing checks and giving of our financial resources to meet the needs of the believer sitting right beside you in the pew. Pray for them, yes. But just like the Philippians gave out of their lack and Paul was grateful for it and he says it's a aroma that's pleasing to God and it's acceptable, so too I think we need to recover this idea that God sees and is pleased not just when we offer to pray for others but when we begin to ask ourselves as a way to love God and to love and serve others how can I not only pray for this person but begin to meet that need if I can. Maybe I can't meet the whole need. But maybe I can meet some of the need. Moises Silva, in his commentary, provides a necessary corrective on this faulty thinking when he says, contributing out of our material resources is not any less spiritual in activity than other aspects of the Christian experience. Indeed, it is an integral factor in the believer's sanctification. So Paul is sitting in a Roman jail. His ministry, if you read Acts, all he was doing has now been stopped, really. He's in jail. He's not out on any more missionary journeys. He's writing letters. He's finishing up his correspondence. He knows at some point death is drawing closer and closer and closer. And the Philippians say... And we love you. We love everything that you've done, all that you are doing in your ministry. And we just want to bless you maybe one final time. And Paul rejoices in it. 
But we don't know how much it was. And I don't think that that matters. I think if it mattered, it would be in here. What matters is there were believers who were willing to be sacrificial with what little they had, trusting that God could use it through Paul's ministry to do more than they could do where they were. And Paul is so grateful for the believer's partnership with him. And so one of the things that we have to ask ourselves as a body of believers, as a, as a church family, is this. Do we really believe the person we stand and sing beside every Sunday? Do we really believe the person that we follow in line to the table to take the Lord's Supper? Do we really believe that they're worth not only praying for, but when the need arises, investing in? That's a hard question to answer. Because we're driven by this mindset of any extra I have, is for me. Any extra I have is to do this thing that I want to do. It's to go, and look, I'm not gonna, we're not going to go into a big long discussion tonight about wants versus needs versus God wants you to enjoy life and I don't think there's anything wrong with having things or I'm, I'm not going to give you like an anti-Christmas message. But what I am going to ask you to consider because I think Paul hits on it so well here and how he words his response to the Philippians is this. Does a spirit of sacrificial generosity in light of the gospel mark how you're living your life, especially as it concerns your finances. Paul was forever grateful to the Philippians that they lived that way. Paul opened his letter in Philippians 1, 3 through 5 by saying, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul opened with joy, and he closes in verses 19 through 23 with four truths that bolster his joy, even as the future from a limited human perspective remains uncertain. The first truth that bolsters Paul, Paul's joy is that God will supply the Philippians' needs through the overflow of his riches that are theirs in Christ Jesus. Paul encouraged the Philippians to continue to look to God for the necessary provisions to do the kingdom work they were called to. Paul knew that in receiving their gift, he was not robbing them of further ministry opportunities. He knew that in faithfully receiving and putting their gift to use, he was creating an avenue where God would continue to meet their needs. It didn't mean they would always be comfortable. It didn't mean that they were meeting, God meeting their needs meant that they were getting a bigger and better house because they sowed into Paul's ministry financially. But what Paul did know was that if they would remain faithfully committed to seeing the gospel go out, they would never find themselves in a position where they lack the necessary strength, the wisdom, the words to say, the courage, the financial resources, the physical resources, the spiritual resources to do the work that God had called them to in the city of Philippi. Paul knew God's faithfulness to supply based off of his own experience. Again, the ESV study Bible is significantly helpful. Those who are generous toward God, this is their words, will find that he is generous toward them and will supply their every need in Christ Jesus. We're not in a one-for-one -one transaction with God where if we 
choose to be generous, that God is somehow on the hook to be generous with us. But there is this idea, and I think it's true, as cliche as it sounds, that you can't outgive God. Now, you can give dumbly, and you can give yourself into a hole, and God is not responsible for digging you out of that. But there is a sense where if you're calculated, and you're thoughtful, and you're generous, and you're sacrificial, that at no point will you ever lack what you need to do the gospel work that God has called you to right here in our city right now. Second truth that bolsters Paul's joy is that God will get the glory forever and ever. 19 was about God supplying riches. 20 says, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. God is committed to his glory forever, and this provides the assurance both to Paul and the Philippians that God will provide for his people. So as God provides for the Philippians and they seek to live for him, he will bring about their faithful endurance as a mean to enhance his own glory and increase their joy even in the midst of pain, struggle, and persecution. The greatest anchor point for Paul's expectant joy is God's commitment to God's glory. So in Paul, it's not just a throwaway line to our God the to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's making a heavy theological statement. That his confidence in everything he has written before now, he has such assurance in it because God is committed to his glory forever and ever. And there is nothing as it pertains to God's glory that he will not work out in the lives of his children to their increasing enjoyment of himself. And so Paul's anchor point for everything he's written from Philippians 1 through Philippians 4.19 is all tied up in the fact that Paul really did believe that God would get the glory forever and ever. Amen. The third thing that Paul was, that was a truth that bolstered Paul's expectant joy and would serve as an encouragement to the Philippians is that he still viewed them as one unified church even as they dealt with strained relationships. Things in the church may not be where Paul or Philippians would like for them to be, especially as it relates to Yodia and Syntyche. They were not a healthy church in, as it regarded some of their relationships. However, Paul still viewed the church as a unified body meant to be living on mission for Jesus. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Paul makes no distinction between the church being divided. He doesn't say, well, greet Yodia's people and don't say a word to Syntyche. Paul still views the church as one unified body meant to be living on mission for Jesus. While they had their own doubts and their own fears, Paul writes with a resounding note of encouragement that his joy is looking forward towards what they will accomplish as they remain one unified body rallying around the gospel of Jesus Christ. The last truth that bolsters Paul's expectant joy is in verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The grace of God will be with them, thereby ensuring their faithful witness in life and in death until they safely arrive in God's presence. Grace that saves is also grace that empowers. Grace does its work at the level of our spirit, and we see the progress of that work as we live our lives in community with one another. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit.
ESV study Bible. The last time I'm quoting him tonight, I promise. Paul ends, this is what they says, Paul ends his letter with a reminder that true progress in life is a gift of God through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul knew the only hope that the Philippians had was that the grace of God would work in their life at a spiritual level to change who they were from the inside out. And that as they went on and lived their life in Philippi for the glory of God and for the advance of his kingdom, one of the ways that they would always be able to look around and tell how they were doing was to see how the grace of God was affecting how they lived their life in community with one another. The grace of God does save us, but it also empowers us to work to love God and to love others with all we have and with all that we are. And so Paul... Maybe you think, why doesn't he put 20 at the end? To our, God be the, to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever, amen. That seems to be the more natural end, right? Like, let's, let's just help Paul here. We move 20 down, and that's where you end. But here's why I think we end on 423. Because 423 carries with it this idea. God will get the glory. God will supply all your needs but you have a vested responsibility in how all that comes to pass. And I think the last thing Paul wanted to do is he wrapped up this letter and knew he was sending him what was more than likely his last correspondence before he tasted death and then saw Christ face to face. I think he wanted them to sit with the weight of how are you going to work out the gospel? And as we draw this whole letter to a close, I think that's the big challenge for us. Not how are you going to tweet about the gospel. Now how are you going to Instagram the gospel. Now how are you going to Facebook argue the gospel. Not how are you going to hole up in a coffee shop and read theological books about the gospel. How are you going to live out the gospel in community? We titled this thing A Study in Sanctification. Sanctification does not happen in a silo. Sanctification happens in the messiness of doing life with other believers. Sanctification happens by opening up your life and being honest about your strengths and honest about your weaknesses and honest about all the areas where you really wish the gospel didn't have to have a say in it. And it means we've got to work. We've got to work to be faithful stewards. We've got to work to be faithful servants. We've got to work to display our love for God and our love for others as the grace of God works deeper and deeper and deeper into our hearts. And so I'm grateful that as we close the book on Philippians tonight and we begin to look forward with expectation to celebrating Christ's birth, we do so with a reminder that the call of the gospel is not a call to respond and then fold your hands in your lap and wait patiently for the Lord to draw you home. The call of the gospel is a call to respond and then a call to spend your life down to the very last moment for the sake of the glory of the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Godly contentment, specific personal gratitude, and expectant joy, they fit together like puzzle pieces. You cannot start with expectant joy and go back to gratitude and back to contentment. 
You start with contentment, which leads you to be grateful, which leads to ever-increasing joy. They are foundational to whole life, long-lasting commitment to the one true God. But I feel like I want to be clear about something here in closing. Godly contentment, specific gratitude, and expectant joy are never to be used to manipulate others into doing more for us when we are well supplied and in need of nothing further. This is not a summons to emotional manipulation. So I want to ask you this. If the three people who are closest to you, who you would say, man, these are the three, like your MySpace five you used to have to do, or the six people that you could call before nine and not burn through your minutes on your cell phone plan, however many people you want to put in this circle, I'm good with, but three, just for the sake of three. The three people who are closest to you were asked, about these three areas of godly contentment, specific personal gratitude, and expectant joy, how would they say you are doing? How would they rate you in being godly in your contentment, in being specific in your gratitude, and being expectant in your joy? As we've celebrated Thanksgiving this past week, may we daily think on the gospel and all we have been blessed with and find contentment. In the week ahead, will we take some time to offer specific thanks by name to those God has used to encourage and supply us and meet needs in our walk with Christ. And as we look ahead to Christmas, will we allow the anticipation of celebrating Christ's birth lead us into expectant joy for his return. Let's pray.